All right, well, let's get into the word. We're going to be in uh, chapter 25 of Matthew. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. These folks will give you one. One last thing before <clears throat> I get into the message. My, uh, my friend Travis Allen is running for governor, and uh, you get a chance to meet him and realize that he's a pretty cool guy like I think he is. Uh, it's March 8th. It's going to be over at the Los Robles Greens from 6 to 9 p.m., and you can sign up. The flyers are out in the foyer. I'm going to be there. I'll be introducing him, and it'd be fun to have you all come out. In addition, I wanted to thank so many of you who uh, came out on Wednesday night to the Reagan Library uh, to encourage my two friends, Scott Lamb and David Brody. And I was actually pleasantly surprised. Uh, the Reagan Library typically will host a book signing, um, and they, they had expected a room that would hold about 40 people. And uh, close uh, over 300 showed up, <clears throat> and they had no idea what to do with them. So they put them in the large room, and they actually were up in the balcony as well. And they expect to sell about uh, twice as many books as they, they have pre-sales for. But not that night. The number of books that sold were just through the roof. And so the director of the Reagan Library sent me a note and said, uh, do you want to promote any of these in the future? <laughs> <clears throat> but it was a profound experience to hear um, these two men who had done extensive interviews and not professing the president's faith, but doing a, a biography of interviewing people that have had contact with him. And really what you heard was a conclusion that the president was um, at a place where he is, he is really searching. Um, and this is, this is documented. They did, they did journalistic work and they laid this out and, the, and folks that they had spoken to and even the vice president, extensive interviews, they'd interviewed the president as well. So it's kind of a fascinating thing. And I, I, I look at this, and I was talking to some folks out in the, in the foyer, um, or foyer. Uh, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. I like foyer, because just American. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or for out there. Um, and they even use the term mare pro tem, mare pro tempore. I think that means, in Latin, fixing to be mare. All right, didn't didn't work. But I was I was speaking with some folks out out in the lobby, and um, and we were commenting about this president that uh, you know you 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 have someone who three times married, twice divorced, um, a, a scallywag in so many different ways. By his own admission, you know probably uh, just just a really rough character. And uh, if you follow his tweets, you're thinking the same thing, and you're like, hmm. And, and uh, what do we do with a guy like this? And yet, here's somebody that, and how do you explain this? Uh, the largest evangelical turnout in a presidential election in modern history. And everyone's saying, well, what's wrong with Christians that they would vote for a person like that? And, and, uh, and, and you think about it. If, and I've said this before, if you look in the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, there's two folks in Hebrews 11 that you kind of have to remove them. If you think that we can't vote for somebody like that president, then you have to remove these two folks from the hall of faith. One is Samson and the other is Rahab. Rahab's a prostitute who lies and is put in the hall of faith. Samson, read Judges 14, 15, and 16, and please find anything moral in that story and try teaching it in Sunday school. And here's what's interesting. Every time the spirit of the Lord came on Samson, it was after sin. He spent an entire night in a prostitute's bed. She ties his hands and the spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he breaks the ropes. Anybody struggle with that in the scriptures? Anybody? <laughs> He has a Nazarite vow. He can't touch dead things, drink alcohol, or let his hair be cut. And he's taking honey out of the carcass of an animal, a dead carcass of an animal, walking through a vineyard. He, he, he drinks. And the very first words out of his mouth is, I want to wear, marry a pagan woman. And, and Manoah and his wife were the only other time in Scripture where an angel of the Lord spoke of, of, a, of a birth was Jesus and Samson. So you're thinking this kid was raised with a Nazarite vow, totally spoken of before he was born by an angel of the Lord to the parents. 
and he's born, you're like, well, let's hear what this young kid has to say. And the first words out of his mouth is, go get that pagan woman. I want to marry her. And her parents, the parents, parents are like, well, no, what are you crazy? We can't, you got to get somebody else. <laughs> he gets into a, he gets, he gambles and he loses and he has to pay a gambling debt. And he has to kill Philistines to get their clothing because that was the, the price. of the and, and to kill the Philistines, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Try to process that. Try to process that in your little neat box of, well, we don't vote for immoral people. Well, then we're not going to be able to vote really for anybody. People say, well, I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. Unless Jesus Christ is running for office. You will always be voting for the lesser of two evils. You vote for policy. You know, think about um, Schindler, Oscar Schindler. If you were a Jew and you were in a concentration camp, and here's a man who's a divorcee, unscrupulous businessman, failing in his business dealings, and he comes to say, I'm going to save you from the concentration camp. You go, I'm waiting for someone moral. Anybody tracking me? The idea is this, Judges 14.4 puts it into perspective. It says, what Samson's parents didn't realize is God was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. You see, Samson was a warrior and he was willing to do what God's people weren't, fight the culture, fight the oppression, fight those that were subduing Israel. And the scripture goes on to say there were 20 years of peace in Israel because of his efforts. And I've said this before, there's seven mountains of cultural influence in the world, arts and entertainment, media, education, business, family, politics, and religion. And in those seven mountains of cultural influence, you want to move a culture, you have to know the currency in each of those cultures. And you look at this man, and, and he's, he's kind of starting to get religion a little bit. I'm not sure where he's, where he's at with that. Uh, Mike Pence seems to think that he is, he is completely enmeshed in the Christian faith, but that's, that's somebody who's with him on a day in and day out basis. I remember when I had sent a, a daily devotional to uh, Sean Spicer, who at the time was the press secretary for the president. And I sent him a devotion, the one I like, that usually when I'm really getting hammered, it's my favorite. It's 31 days of wisdom and praise, Psalms and Proverbs. And I sent two of them to him in case you know anyone who needs the other copy. <laughs> I'm just praying it's on his desk and he's reading it. I know Sean did, because when I went to go visit him at the White House, he introduced me, and the first thing he wanted to do is take me into his office and point to his dog-eared devotional that he'd been reading every day. And this is a man that, you know, had a, a Catholic background, but hadn't participated. He was maybe, maybe a CEO Christian, Christmas and Easter only. Um, but we'd had a very, very profound discussion, similar with the Wilkinsons, that we were up on the top of the Mamilla Hotel, and I, I had to preach the next day. Uh, at the garden tomb and I was burdened by the message. So I went up, I told Michelle, I'm going to go up to the top of the hotel and just kind of collect my thoughts. I went up there and there was Sean all by himself. And uh, he, he, we just started talking and he's a man who's adopted children. We had adopted Natasha and we were talking and I was talking about how adoption is dear to the heart of the Lord. And we had a really profound conversation and we stayed friends. And then shortly after that, the president gets elected and he's placed in as the press secretary. And I stayed in contact with him and continued to pray for him. And he's actually going to come and speak here. I, I just talked to him this week. He's going to come and share with us. But the idea is we're dealing with a culture where the question is, are we ready to move the culture? And is the culture prepared for the return of Christ? Is this a culture that is biblically, as we've been doing this, biblically literate? Is the word of God in the culture today? And we took a look at a lot of things last week that kind of threw us for a loop. And then I'll, I'll say one more thing and then we'll get into the study. Uh, yesterday, I, I drove back from San Diego, went to go visit my son. Uh, my wife and I did and took my youngest boy to go visit my oldest son. He's at USD, University of San Diego. And uh, we went in and saw the, the chapel, stunning. And as we were coming out, um, there was an advertisement. Uh, I have to be careful here, looking around, age group. Hold your ears. Seriously, put them in there. Any young kids, do this right now. Okay. It was the vagina monologues. You guys have heard of this? And, and okay, you can take them out now. Okay. Uh, and, and this was Notre Dame. This is what brought down Notre Dame because they started to promote this. And it's what, 
It's what St. Augustine called the libido dominandi, which is this idea to, to have authority over somebody else, to dominate another human being. And, and, and this is where we get the term libido. So Aristotle said there are two virtues. There's the, there's the doing virtue and the thinking virtue. The doing virtue, I've said this before, the doing virtue is everyone has a passion. Hunger, right? We have a, a passion, we have a, a need for food. And our stomach starts to growl and we want to eat something. So that's a doing virtue. But if you don't apply a thinking virtue, which re- requires intellect and reason, along with morality, then the doing virtue is dangerous. Because a doing virtue will always be drawn to a base passion instead of a conviction. So the passion is going to be driven towards something that's not good for you. I can put a plate full of candy out there or a healthy meal and the kids will go to the candy. Passion, right? Conviction is this isn't good for me. I have to apply restraint towards this in order to pursue excellence for my body. So I'm going to eat this. And we're teaching kids to do that. We're doing our best, right? And in, in, in the, the law school at Harvard Law School, and it's in the commem- commencement every year at Harvard Law to all the graduating law school students, the comment is made by um, uh, a previous professor who stated, you are now engaged to establish the wise restraints that make men free. And so they look at the law as restraints, freedom, the, the wise restraints that make men free. We've covered this. How do restraints make somebody free? Because we think that freedom is the absence of restraints, especially if you're a libertarian. Just, you know, leave me alone, let me do my thing. The law are the wise restraints that make men free. You restrain yourself towards the passions of destruction, which is Aristotle's doing virtues, in order to pursue the thinking virtues to obtain a higher level of excellence. Case in point. The Super Bowl, Tom Brady, not this year, but the year before, the most amazing comeback in NFL history, correct? Unbelievable quarterback. He has the freedom to enjoy football at a higher level of excellence than I do. Because when I was sitting on the couch watching and eating potato chips and drinking a big Coke and getting larger, he was out practicing and throwing the football. So he can enjoy football at a higher level. For those of you who are are doctors, you'd applied restraint while everyone else was playing Xbox, and now you have the freedom to understand anatomy and be able to, to do surgical work on the human body. And what we want for our children is we apply restraints in order to pursue excellence. Is everyone clear on this? But what happens in our culture, and this is the way that a culture takes away the freedom of man if they want to be in charge and they want to have dominion over man, they apply libido dominandi. It's real, it's real simple. If I don't want you to have equality with me and I want you to serve me and I want to have control over you, I push you towards your passions while I, I apply my intellect. Right? So here's, here's an interesting one. You can do your own case study. 2002, there was an intifada, which is an uprising in the Muslim world, and it was, a, it was a war against Israel. So the intifada, the uprising, and they attacked Israel. Israel responded, and they, they took over Ramallah, which is in the Palestinian territory. They took over Ramallah, the, the Israelis did. The first thing the Israelis did when they took over Ramallah is they took over the three television stations. And then on the three television stations, guess what they started to broadcast? You'd say, oh, propaganda. No, no, no. They, they, put, they, they started to broadcast pornography because they were appealing to the doing virtue of just the base passion of watching that. And all of these, these Muslims were, well, I guess, oh, well, I'm not. <laughs> and what they, they're, they're glued to this and forgetting that they're occupied. If you wonder about this, just look at the French Revolution, the Marquis de Sade, where you get the word sadistic and you get sadomasochism. It was from the Marquis de Sade. And he had written a book with all kinds of graphic imagery and everything. And that was the idea that he could get all the populace of France to just be checked out in a doing virtue and not applying a thinking virtue. And they could be dominated, libido dominandi. So my point in all of this, as we're getting ready to take a look, is that as a culture... You have been anesthetized. 
you are so captivated by the doing virtues, your passions, that you're no longer thinking. We don't teach children. We don't, we don't educate. We indoctrinate. And then we feed them things that anesthetize them. And that's what we do in our culture. But what's fascinating is yesterday I was at a Boy Scout court of honor for Eagle Scout. And I sat down at a table and there was Chief Tim Hagel, our, our police chief, and myself, and then county supervisor Linda Parks. And we were the dignitaries that had the privilege to congratulate Corbin on obtaining Eagle Scout, which is a PhD in manhood as far as I'm concerned. It's amazing. And these, these kids have to go through an enormous amount of work to accomplish this. And they learn in many, 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 many things. And we spoke. Well, I'm going to share with you the story momentarily of Chief Hagel. Uh, and we'll build into that. But it all boils down to one concept. And this is what we'll begin our study with. Two words, one concept. Be prepared. Let's just meditate on that. Be prepared. Because as we study chapter 24, and now we're coming into 25, the Lord is teaching parables, parabolos, come alongside, parallel lines. He's taking a heavenly truth with an earthly illustration, and he's putting it alongside so you can understand it. And the whole point of 24 and 25 is this. Be prepared. Let's try that again. Be prepared. <laughs> so let's take a look at it. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, chapter 25. Verse 1, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So they're describing a Jewish wedding. I'll explain it. I won't go into great detail, but I'll explain to you all Jewish Orthodox weddings. You have 10 bridesmaids. They're dressed in white. The bride's dressed in white. She's under a white canopy of silk. It's a very typical picture. Anyone listening to the story in this time would totally get it. Okay, good. And they have to be virgins. Verse 2. Now, five of, these, uh, five of these bridemaids were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Hello. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept, all of them. So it's okay to sleep. <laughs> we need some rest now and then. At midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And they went to buy and the, uh, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then here is the emphasis of the parable because it has a lesson. And we've already learned the lesson. Verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming, which means you need to. So good. So good. I'm so proud. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that you have given us clear instruction. Lord, we're often prepared through so many of life's events, but when it comes to spiritual matters, we just whistle by the graveyard thinking that there's no end in sight. But it's appointed once for a man to die. The grave is no respecter of persons. It awaits us all. And yet we make no provision for that, and we are not prepared. But today, Lord, may that not be the case, because you have instructed us to be prepared. And so, Lord, by your word, would you speak to every person present and minister to their heart the importance of what they're about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a seat, please. So in chapter 24, when, when uh, this lesson that Jesus began to instruct his disciples and, and, and it's the disciples. He's not speaking to the world in general because chapter 24 began by Jesus saying uh, to his disciples when they came up, he showed them the buildings. They were so amazed by him. He says, do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And we looked at uh, Ves, uh, Titus Vespasian, who was a Roman ruler, 70 AD, took the temple down. All the Romans were looking for the gold that melted after the fire. You can go to Jerusalem today, see exactly what Jesus said occurred. Boom, bam. 
And, and they were marveling at that because here they are in Jerusalem. We're getting to the end of the book of Matthew. We're coming into Good Friday and we're coming, now we're in Lent. We're coming into Good Friday and we're going to see that Jesus is going to be crucified, buried, resurrected. All this is occurring in the book of Matthew and it's also occurring currently for us as the time of year where we celebrate these events. And, and so here they are in Jerusalem. Everybody wants to kill Jesus. Je- they're marveling at the temple. And Jesus says, hey, this is all coming down. And they're stunned by it. And then this is the, the part that puts it into perspective for us. Verse 3 of chapter 24. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. It says, now Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. So they come to him and it's just a small group and probably Peter, James and John. And they say, tell us when these things will be. And then Jesus begins to teach a series of parables, heavenly truth with an earthly illustration to remind them of what is going to happen and to be prepared. We see this in verse 30, uh, 36, where he says, but of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days of Noah, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And then it goes on further in chapter 24 in verse 39, where he says, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the man, uh, son of man be. It'll be boom, just like that. You'll be eating and drinking and having a wedding. And, and then phew, he's here. What? Okay. Verse 42, Jesus says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Nobody knows, not even the angels, not even Jesus, only the father. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready or be prepared for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is, verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. So we're to be busy and we're to be prepared And we're to have a spiritual mindset that this will wrap up. It's appointed once for man to die. Everyone in this room has something in common. We're all going to die, right? Few of you believe that. I'm not sure how the rest of you, you're working on Silicon Valley where they're going to, the immortality where they're going to take all your brain matter and all your thoughts and put them in a robot. Oh, that's hell. Uh, I'm thinking that would be wonderful. That's great. Super for you. But this is the picture that the Lord is saying. You need to be mindful, not only of physically being prepared, but mentally and spiritually being prepared. There is a God in heaven and you and I are not him. Two great truths of the universe, a God in heaven and we are not him. We will give an accounting to him. We will die and stand before him. It doesn't matter if you believe it or you don't believe it. As I said often, it doesn't matter if you believe in gravity or not. It doesn't matter. It is a law of the universe, the law of gravity. There are spiritual laws that govern us. You doubt this. What's fascinating is there's one entity remaining in American society for young men. Now it's young men and women. And there is a a defined attempt to destroy it. It's called the Boy Scouts of America. They have what is called a moral foundation. As John Adams said, a constitutional republic designed that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. No other government faces the earth with this mindset. Equal, not in capacity, but in dignity. Where we have this unprecedented freedom of any, any government in the history of mankind. And it was John Adams who said, only a, a constitutional republic will only survive with a moral people. You see, you need fewer laws if you're accountable to God. If you believe that God says don't steal and you're accountable to him and you have fear of the Lord, which is beginning of wisdom, respect, reverence, you won't steal. People say we need, we need to, we, the kids need to be loved more. No, 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 no. Kids need to fear God and fear their parents. We don't have a fear of God anymore. And the idea is there is a God of the universe and he is going to have us give an accounting and we will stand before him. And, and we are here to occupy, we're to be doing good. We're to be doing these works under the master of the house. It's his, you just saw that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. Yes. 
All who dwell in it. It's his. Drink in his air. Or see, drink in his air. Drink in his water. Breathe in his air. Living on his dirt. We will give an accounting. And so when it goes through this parable of the wise and the foolish virgins in chapter 25, it's another picture of be prepared. He's giving another parable, but he's using a wedding ceremony, which every Jew understood. Ten bridesmaids, all virgins, and they're wearing white. The, The bride is wearing white. She's waiting for the groom. And the way it would work is they would announce their engagement the, the bridegroom would go and build the house and finish the roof. And when he had finished doing that, he would then go and call for his bride and he would arrive and she'd be waiting for him sometime during that week. And if you ever want to see a really cool Orthodox Jewish wedding, there's some cool movies on Netflix and HBO where you can see this. It's all in Hebrew. And, and I watch this and it's exactly what we're seeing in Matthew 25. And she's waiting for him to arrive. She doesn't know who it's going to be. It's a really cool story. I'm not going to get into it. But here in this picture, she's waiting and she doesn't know when he's coming, but she's waiting for his arrival. She knows he's coming, but she doesn't know the day or the hour. Got that? And she's got her bridesmaids waiting and they've got their lamps and some of them don't have oil in them and they're not quite prepared. What good is a lamp without oil? By the way, this is one of those parables that has been so tortured And if you torture something long enough, you'll get him to say anything you want. This is one of those parables that has been taken so far out of context with so many different concepts. The simplicity of it is be prepared. Be prepared for his return. Either that's going to be a return where you're going to get a personal invitation to return to him when your body ceases to operate and your, your brain shuts down, your heart stops, or you'll return to him when he returns. But either way, we're going to meet him. And you're either going to say, you know, I have received by faith, it's a gift. It's, it's through grace by faith that I've received salvation, not of works. And I've received Christ as my savior. Or you'll say, I want to stand before you when I perceive to be my good works and that you need to let me in because I'm a good person. And God will say, compared to who? And, you'll, and we've done this before. And compared to the pastor, I'm better than him. And God says, who in the room isn't? Who in the room isn't? But he's not the standard. My son is whom you rejected. Depart from me. I never knew you. Sin isn't allowed into heaven. Sin is the destruction of man. Sin is the poison that has ruined us. It's not the thing. People say, I'm going to go to hell and party with my friends. No, you're not. You have no idea what you're talking about. Sin is the doing thing without the thinking and the intellect and the morality. And all you're doing is killing yourself at the expense of your parents who are paying the bill. And loved ones who are tired of doing it. And it's the destruction of culture and the preservation of man. And it destroys families. God gives order to the universe. We are governed by these laws, the laws of nature and nature's God as our founders described. And so with this moral understanding, these, these bride bridesmaids had lamps. Oil represents the Holy spirit, the presence of Christ in the, in in the believer's life. The Bible says we believers are temples of the Holy spirit. What that means is we're born again. You know, well, that born again thing. Well, I'm not the one who made it up. Jesus said that. He said, you must be born again, not of flesh, but of the spirit. You see, man is a trichotomy, body, soul, spirit. And when we sinned against God, the spirit of the Lord departed. So we're a body and an intellect, but the spirit is missing the pneuma, soma, psyche, pneuma, The pneuma comes when you say, God, forgive me. I receive your gift of salvation that Christ died for the penalty of what I did so that I could be reconnected to you, religion, Rilangari, reconnected to you, that your spirit would dwell in me and I would be a new creature in Christ. Come in and be my Lord. Holy Spirit comes. Now the spirit tells the mind what the body does instead of the body telling the mind, oh, drugs, yeah. Now the spirit dictates. God says no. The mind says, well, I can't. And the body says, no. And we're a trichotomy once again, operating in the way God had always intended us to be. In the fullness, the full nature of what God intended. The laws of nature, nature's God. You want an acorn to turn into an oak tree? You need some things to make it work. You need air and you need soil and you need water so it can realize its full potential. That's the same with humanity. You're created in the image of God. Don't you think that a relationship with him would be vital if you're going to experience your full nature? 
But we reject that side of it thinking we don't need him. And we, we make up all kinds of governments to try to remove him and take him out of everything pertaining to, to knowledge and wisdom. And the Bible says, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can give someone knowledge, which is the accumulation of facts, but wisdom is doing things with that knowledge for the glory of God and the preservation of man. Knowledge and wisdom are two different things. Wisdom comes with fear of God. You take that out, you just have really smart criminals. You know, we don't, uh, uh, gun control or whatever, all I have to tell you is, I've been to gun shows, and none of them have ever jumped off the table and shut, I'll tell you what is dangerous is an empty soul holding that weapon. We don't have a gun issue. We have a morality issue. But we don't want to address it. Burl Kane, who is the director of Angola Prison in Louisiana, they had the highest murder rate of any prison in the United States. And for over 12 years, they've never had a murder because they started preaching the gospel there. Billy Graham is buried, is going to be buried in one of the caskets made by the inmates who are lifers. Because Bro Kane started to put all this together. They haven't had a murder. I, I, was, I was at the governor's mansion, Bobby Jindal, with my wife and some others having dinner, being served by lifers at Angola Prison with tats, and they had butcher knives in the back. They could have gone to town on us. And every one of them loves Jesus and couldn't wait to talk about the Lord. And when Dennis Prager walked through and he was interviewed and they asked him, what'd you think of Angola? And he says, it makes me angry. They said, what? It makes me angry. We basically have the cure to cancer, the cure to, 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 to murder. And because it's moral and spiritual, we can't preach it. We have a morality issue in the country. Because we have a, a theophobia, fear of God. Not fear and respect, but we don't want him. We do what seems right in our own eyes, and it is just chaotic what we've come up with in our solutions. And so we blame guns, and we blame kids are failing school. Blame the pencils. Okay, good. But certainly don't talk about the moral fiber and don't remove God from schools because this is a violation of separation of church and state. Well, I have news for you. People say this to me all the time. You can't legislate morality. Every law is based on someone's morality. Where where do you come up with this? And so here, it's the idea that these virgins have lamps. Some of them are filled with God, Holy Spirit, oil, and some of them aren't. It's kind of like a culture that, well, we have... How many people in the room who profess themselves to be born-again Christians had a Bible in your home before you became a Christian? Raise your hand. That's called an empty lamp. How many of you had heard scriptures and been to Sunday school and been to church but wasn't a, weren't a Christian? Raise your hand. Empty lamps. How many of you, after having a personal relationship with God, realized what it's like to be filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit in that lamp? Raise your hand delivered from drugs, delivered from pornography, delivered from oppression, simply by the preaching of the word of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. A trichotomy of full human being once again. This is the picture. The foolish ones are the ones that walk around. There's the Bible sitting there. It's not going to jump off, off the coffee table into your heart or into your brain and then into your heart. It's got to travel the, however long your neck is, mine's shorter, but it's got to travel that distance to get to your heart. And if you don't read it, faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. We're in a biblically illiterate culture. That's why we're having you memorize scripture so you can start to understand that that God's word brings life. But we want to keep it out of schools. Just make laws. And after a while, it just gets silly. Honestly, it just just gets silly. When is enough enough? When are we going to contend for culture to bring what is missing back? And so these are those five virgins. They're just, they're foolish. The, the, in the Greek, it's stupid. It's even worse. And they're just, they're waiting for a wedding and they don't have any oil? And they're holding a lamp? Really? And then when the bridegroom comes, 
And, and, a, and, a, and a wedding, interestingly enough, would always happen at sundown. It always happened at sundown. So you know you're going to need oil, McFly. You're, you're going to need oil. For the older folks, you get it. Some of the air, McFly. <laughs> if I keep using it, they'll research it. And they don't have any oil in their lamps. They aren't prepared. They aren't prepared. At midnight, it says in verse 6, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. At midnight. You know, that's interesting. When I was a sheriff's chaplain, nobody ever called me to come to a suicide scene in the afternoon or the death of someone at a convenient hour. No one ever goes to the hospital at a convenient hour. Babies are never born at a convenient hour. Yet you're prepared. You got your get out and go bag, right? And, and you're prepared for the coming of that child. You're prepared for those events. Our first responders are prepared for those events. And yet here at midnight, it was whole behold, the bridegroom is coming. And I just simply say this to you. I don't know your spiritual background. Some of you I do, many of you I don't. How are you prepared spiritually? You just, you're just going to stop living and just dissipate into nothing? Just return back to matter and, and this, these thoughts and intellect and, and, and this concept of right and wrong and absolute morality and that there... It, people say, no, 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 we're, there's, there's, we're only material... We're just, we're material. That's all we are. Oh, isn't that fascinating? Well, I have news for you. If that's you, you, you can't say to me I'm evil or I'm good. And you can't use those terms because those are metaphysical. You, you can't use them. Because that means that if you're saying I'm evil, you're, you're professing that there's something good, which is now a spiritual dimension. But you're just material. So really... What happened in Florida can't be evil. What happened in Nazi Germany can't be evil. Oh, and quite honestly, you can't call rape evil. Because if it's survival of the fittest, don't you think your DNA should be everywhere? If we're just animals, if there's no morality, yes? That's your world. Good luck with that. Because there is a God. And there is right, and there is wrong, and there is good, and there is evil. And it doesn't matter if you whistle past the graveyard and come up with some sort of fanciful idea that you've been created by a cosmic accident, even though you live in a world that has a sunrise and a sunset and four seasons that you can bank on that screams of order and design. And the intricacy of every cell is screams of a designer. But you dismiss that because you don't want to be accountable. I get that. I was there. I don't mock you. I get you. But what an empty life that is as you pursue it because as the clock ticks, you realize I'm not ready. And you think, I don't have to worry. Because as in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and being given in marriage and society goes on and you can still have something to do and entertain you and not have to worry about it. It's okay. And there's a drug that can take away the anxiety and there's a drug that can take away whatever. Play a card game. Make it go away, but certainly don't be prepared for anything spiritual. Well, the Lord is declaring to his disciples and to you, you must be prepared. It's coming. You're standing on the tracks and the train is coming. You see the train. This is perplexing. And the lights like a mop. Oh. Well, okay. Uh, should I get off the track or stay on the track? I don't know. I mean, I went to church on Sunday. I'm trying to be prepared. <laughs> Christians. I mean, if I get off the track, then everybody's laugh at me. Oh, born again. Listen. To make no decisions to make a decision for death. Get off the track. Be prepared. 
You believe in your heart, confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You don't, you get smacked. And that's of your own doing because you saw it. It makes sense. All creation screams of the glory of God. If you're alone and you turn off the music and you just sit there and contemplate life, you and I both know that you are a spiritual creature and you think of eternity, whether you want to or not. I know those moments because I've been in your seat. And here, they come running with this empty religiosity and no oil in their lamps. They go to try to buy it, try to earn your salvation. God, I was a good guy. and Let me give you some money. Let me in. It's over. The wedding has already happened. You're out. You should have been ready. And listen, I can't give you my oil. Your parents are Christians and you're not. God doesn't have grandkids. He's just got kids. Being born in a, in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. You gotta, you've got you've, you've to gotta put in the thinking virtue and profess Christ as your savior. You've got to make that act of faith. That's your deal. You're accountable. You're responsible. You don't blame your mom. You don't blame your dad. You don't blame your teacher or your lousy coach or anybody. It's with you. The Bible says every man is without excuse. You can't look up at the night sky and say there's no God. You just can't do it. You can't look at creation and say there's no God. You just can't. You've got to really shelve your brain and your intellect to do that. And here, this is what the point of the message is. Be prepared. I, I say this because Baden-Powell was the founder of Boy Scouts. U.S. Coast Guard kind of took their this idea earlier than Boy Scouts did. They, they called it Semper Paratus, which means always ready, like the, the Coast Guard. These are the ones that rescue people. But the Boy Scout motto is be prepared. And Baden-Powell said, be prepared for what? Someone once asked Baden-Powell, why for any old thing, said Baden-Powell, the training you receive in your troop will help you live up to the scout motto of be prepared. That's why we have a Boy Scout troop here, Troop 711. I'm so impressed with these guys. And, and if you have an accident, you're prepared. I, I became a Christian. I actually became a pastor through Boy Scouts. I, I, I became a lifeguard because of Boy Scouts. I learned most of what I know through Boy Scouts. This is Eagle Scout that was awarded yesterday. It's, and there's the motto right there, be prepared. Be prepared. They learn life-saving first aid. They learn personal management, personal fitness. They, they learn citizenship in the nation, citizenship in the world, citizenship in the community. They have Eagle Scout badges, merit badges that are required and they go through all of these, and they, they literally have an understanding. They have pursued the thinking virtues, while the rest, 96% of the people that enter scouts never get there. These Eagle Scouts have obtained what only 4% do, and that's Eagle Scout. And once an Eagle, always an Eagle. I was a Life Scout. Skips a generation of the greatness. My dad was an Eagle. My kids are. Not me. I'm in the 96ers. But even in the 96%, I still obtained... Through thinking virtues, so many things that guided my life. My father, even in the throes of Alzheimer's, giving me a tour of the house, left side all the family, right side all of his accolades, never showed me the right side of the wall when he gave me a tour of the house I'd lived in my whole life because it was his coping mechanism with Alzheimer's. He only showed me the pictures of the family until he got to the end of the hallway. You can see it in my office. If you ever come up there, it's a big wooden plaque with all of his military awards, Legion of Merit, Bronze Star, all of these things. Every one of his commands, his swords, everything. He never pointed to a single medal. He just pointed to a, a weathered 70-year-old medal, and he pointed with a shaking finger and a, and, a, and a fading mind. And it was his Eagle Scout Award. Because he knew that medal was the result of everything else he had accomplished on that wall. It prepared him for life. Not just physically or emotionally, but spiritually. My first exposure to the Lord was in Boy Scouts. Norman Rockwell. Americana. You see, there's another Boy Scout in our community. You'd be shocked to realize this. And I got to know this yesterday. He grew up here, born here, raised here. It's our chief of police, Tim Hagel. Tim's a friend. I love this guy. He is an amazing man in this community. And we were at the Eagle Scout Award, 
And he stood up and he spoke before I did. And I usually pride myself on having a very gifted ability to impress the crowds. <laughs> and when he finished, I was, I, I just, I didn't have anything to say. I was paralyzed because his story so, so magnificent. He was a young guy and he's, he's an adventurer. He goes hiking everywhere. He's taking kids on the Lewis and Clark trail, these explorers. I mean, this guy is always up in the mountains somewhere. He is a go-getter. Me, I, you know, camping to me is a hotel. He went, what, what's that? I missed it. Oh, praise the Lord. So, so Chief Hagel, Tim, decides to go on a kayaking trip out by Santa Cruz Island kayaking. And this, this is what he was doing. I look at that and I, are you an idiot? That's, that's what I was thinking. And while he was kayaking out of the Santa Cruz Islands, a freak storm hit. And this storm sunk his kayak. And it started to take him, it was 27 miles off the coast. He was on his way to Hawaii. I kid you not. He was, no, no, no. He was caught in the currents. He was there swimming for 14 hours, but thank God he had a rescue suit. He had a radio that he kept using that nobody was responding to. Kept doing it, kept doing it. Nobody was responding to it. In this rescue suit, he's putting together everything he learned in Boy Scouts. The radio didn't work, so he took rope, gathered clumps of seaweed, wrapped them together to put himself up on top of the seaweed to avoid hypothermia. Where did he learn that? Boy Scouts. Where did he learn the rope and the time? Boy Scouts. And as he's, why did he have a radio? Boy Scouts. Survival suit? He's up, he's out there 14 hours. And he tries his radio. 5,000 flights had passed over that area. And one airline, Southwest Airlines, a pilot and a co-pilot of the 5,000 planes, and he knows the tail number of that plane and everything, of the 5,000 planes that had transversed during that period of time, only Southwest Airlines, two pilots, a pilot and a co-pilot, the only plane that had their emergency transponder on. And they picked up on it and they said, uh, they heard the mayday, 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 and they said, what vessel are you? And he goes, I'm Tim. <laughs> on seaweed. <laughs> and he gave the coordinates as best he could. And he learned how to get the coordinates as best he could from. And everybody and their grandmother came out and he was rescued. And do you know every day, or excuse me, every year, he flies back and has a reunion with those two pilots. And you know what's interesting about those two pilots? They were. Now you're clapping because we're excited about somebody being rescued. That word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Why? Because you have the oil of the Holy Spirit. But know this, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Are you prepared? We can be prepared physically, but we we'll also be prepared Spiritually. Baden-Powell, be prepared. The meaning of the motto is that a scout must prepare himself by previously thinking out and practicing how to act on any accident or emergency so that he is never taken by surprise. Physical, spiritual. I would just simply say this, the old Christmas hymn. Let every heart prepare him room. Right? Be prepared. I'll close with this last thought. You guys have heard this story a thousand times, but I learned how to be a lifeguard by Boy Scouts. And I was a good lifeguard. Went and rescued a kid who didn't want to be rescued. So prideful. I'll never forget. No, so prideful. All his friends were laughing on the shore. And I went to give him his rescue tube. I had to keep my distance. You learn this in Boy Scouts. You keep your distance because you come near them. They grab you to try to stay afloat and they drown you both. 
You learn all kinds of things in Boy Scouts. Be prepared. He was drowning. I knew how to save him because I was prepared. He wasn't. He went swimming with a shirt. He went out further than he knew how to swim. He went out after eating. He had cramps. He was heavy set. He had clothes that was dragging him down. I knew that he was in trouble. I was prepared. I had a tube to give him to bring him in. I had fins to be able to propel him back in. So I had enough energy for the two of us to save him and myself. I extended him this life-saving opportunity, and he said, I don't need your buoy. Because he heard all of his friends laughing at the shore. So I had to sit on the buoy in the freezing cold water and wait for this idiot to come to the end of his pride. Let me repeat that. To wait for him to come like these foolish virgins who didn't have any oil. I had to wait for them to realize how dumb they were. And I was freezing. I wasn't a Christian then. Finally, he starts gasping and swallowing water and he's panicking and he's turning purple and he's really in trouble at this point. And the guy in the Jeep is going, do something. I'm like, I'm waiting. And he was ripe. He said, help me, help me, help me. I need the tube. I looked down, I said, you say please. (laughs) He's like, what? I said, I've been out here freezing cold waiting for you to come to the end of your prideful self. You're more concerned with the guys on the beach than you are with being saved. I knew you needed to be saved and you're making me freeze. You say please. He goes, please, please, please. I go, fine. I hook him up and bring him in. And he gets into the shore and his friends are still laughing at him. He grabs his stuff and he says, you don't care about me. That man just saved my life and you're laughing at me. And I I think about, I think about social pressure that keeps people away from being prepared spiritually because you've bought into the, the cosmic treason that there's no God and you think it's hip. You're foolish and you have no oil. And today you've been handed a buoy you're drowning and you need to come to terms with that the train's coming receive the Lord the Bible says you believe in your heart you confess with your tongue you will be saved penalties paid reconnected with God body soul and spirit and you're a new creature in Christ and your lamp is filled with the oil of the Lord but you have to receive that by faith you can't buy it you can't earn it it's a gift And you receive it by saying, yes, Lord. And that's being prepared. Thank God Tim was prepared or we wouldn't have a chief of police. It's one of the best we've ever had. He'd be a statistic. And listen, folks, the train's coming. I'm not into fright. But the reality is, we're all going to die. Are you prepared? I am. I have no fear of death. You want to threaten me with death? You threaten me with heaven. Bring it. It it does wonders on this earth to allow me to operate in the capacity to lead others to Christ and to be bold with this proclamation. And Billy Graham, who didn't make it to 100, died this week, professed that, almost 500 crusades around the world. And today, the spirit of that gospel is being presented to you. And today is a day of salvation.